everybody, this is Adam Cook from the NIL Store and Campus Inc. Today we have Ksenia Myrova, the sports visa lawyer, joining us on the podcast today for a fascinating conversation around international students, how they're impacted by NIL, and where future legislation might take us. I hope you enjoy the episode. See, I had to get the, the sports visa lawyer moniker because I'm like, people can't pronounce my name. So rather than having people remember how to spell my name to search for it in Google or pronounce it, I'm like, I'm going to be called something. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the perfect. idea from a guy who's the bed bug lawyer. I don't know if you've heard of that guy, but I'm like, that's brilliant because they don't have to remember his name. They're just like, oh, that bed, bed bug lawyer. I'm going to Google that. <laughs> <laughs> and that, it. for all my friends out there, is how you build a brand. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the NIL Show. Adam Cook here, joined by Sean Ellenby. And as always, another really special guest. We have the sports visa lawyer, Ksenia Myrova, joining us for today's episode. Ksenia, thanks for being here. We're really excited for this conversation. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you so much. So first question we like to ask all of our guests, we kick it off with, with a softball. Uh, what is your like dream brand? If you could sign an NIL deal with somebody, what's the slam dunk restaurant for the sports visa lawyer? Who would, who would you love to sign an NIL restaurant deal with? Restaurant? Hmm. I don't know. I, I patronize. I like to patronize small, like non-chain ethnic restaurants. So I yeah. would have to say you know, probably a Korean restaurant in town, maybe Shenzhen. They just reopened a fire, they reopened, um, you know, so I'd love to support that. Heck yeah, right right on brand. Local ethnic restaurant, I'm I'm here for it. That's awesome. That's a, yeah. um, so tell us, tell us a little bit about um, your, yourself, your journey. You have a really fascinating story um, beyond just how you got kind of started in sports law. But uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about who Ksenia is. Uh, yeah, so I'll try to do the very short Cliff's Notes version. Um, I always say I'm a recovering corporate lawyer. I started my career in corporate finance at a huge international law firm doing mergers and acquisitions and IPOs. And it was uh, terrifyingly boring. Um, (laughs) I hated my life and I decided that I wanted to get out and I wanted to do immigration. So I got out and I became sort of a general practice immigration attorney until my uh, friend Justin Gatlin's coached waltzed into my office one day and said, hey, I need a sports visa for this guy. And I was like, Uh, I know that exists, but I don't know how to do one. And this man who is a legend in track and field, his name is Brooks Johnson. He's been training Olympic athletes for like six decades. It's incredible. Um, He's an older guy and has been around for a really long time. This isn't, this is not a person you say no to. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and he said to me, well, I trust you'll figure it out. So I had to. And (laughs) And I did. And after that, they just kept coming. So I started kind of developing this niche practice in sports immigration, um, you know, marrying my love of sports. I'm a SEC school alum. I went to the University of Tennessee. Uh, we are a 10-point favorite against the Gators for next week, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> and college game day is going to be there. Huge. Exactly. Exactly. Huge. <laughs> And in fact, I got to say, the last time that we beat the Gators, Justin Gatlin and I were both on campus. So we feel like we're lucky. Cool. 100%. Um, 
I tried to get him to like to go up again, but he has a, a clinic at another friends of ours um, <clears throat> university this weekend. So unfortunately, we won't be able to be there, but we're going to be rooting from Florida and hopefully they'll still cool. pull it out. So, yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that's kind of the, the way that it goes for me is just it's a marriage of passions that I've had all my life. Uh, I love the law. I always knew I would be a lawyer. I didn't think I'd be a sports lawyer, but, you know, things kind of happen in that direction and I'm all the more happy for it. That's awesome. And I, so I was doing a, a little bit of research, kind of looking at your your firm's website and you, um, you know, as you take this approach to kind of uh, an empathetic approach to athletes, understanding where they came from, uh, kind of their journey. You know, you did your undergrad at Tennessee. You did your um, uh, your law school at Berkeley. Um, mm-hmm. and, and where where are you from originally? Uh, I'm originally from Russia, actually. Don't hold that against me. I am all on board with Ukraine, very <laughs> anti-Putin, very vocal about it. Um, that's an important thing to say nowadays because I think, you know, um, I've actually been doing some pro bono work with Ukrainian athletes and um, Ukrainians just across the board deserve our support and um, and I'm here to give it to them. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I just think that's such a, a a unique perspective to have as well. And, you know, Sean and I run into this all the time in the NIL space of, you know, there's so many people that are spinning up in in this industry and in this space that, you know, are just trying to take advantage of, of the opportunity versus actually approaching it from, you know, the industry or from, from an empathetic point of view. And uh, I think that that's really great, especially with unique challenges that international student athletes face here, um, that you're able to, to not just professionally take the approach, but also also empathetically take that approach as well. So, um, for sure, for sure. I mean, I think being an immigrant, uh, is a tremendous asset and being an immigration attorney, because we know what the people go through, not only procedurally, but also emotionally. And actually my entire team is all, uh, compressed of uh, of immigrants. We're from all different countries, primarily in the former Soviet Union, but I do have a, a Colombian team member as well. And, um, you know, and it, it makes a huge difference. But also, you know, the fact that I've been around athletes, I, um, I tutored athletes at Tennessee. I, you know, I've been friends with Justin for over 20 years and kind of been following him around the world and getting to know his training partners and other people in the space. And, um, you know, there's a tremendous appreciation for the work that they do. And I think, you know, even at the college level, totally undervalued. I mean, one of the things that I had to overcome as a tutor at Tennessee was this bias that I think is just so inherent in, Hmm. you know, in all communities against athletes and the sort of perception, oh, they're dumb jocks. They're, you know, they're just here to, uh, to mooch off of the system. And, And I had it. I really did until I started tutoring them and I realized, you know, these folks aren't dumb. They're just academically neglected and they're mm-hmm. talented in so many ways. And um, and the reason why I love NIL so much is it's just an opportunity to parlay, you know, some of the talents they have off the field into opportunities. Like I was really surprised to learn how many athletes are also artists. And I guess that works mm-hmm. well with your space, right? Yeah. It's, they're so uh, they're gifted um and you know and this is a, a talent of theirs that doesn't get a lot of attention because it tends to be overshadowed by the athletic talent but i really love to see the intersection of actually of art and sport and i think it's a really great thing that you're doing to kind of marry up those those aspects as well it's it's amazing the the balance that these athletes have we we posted a podcast today with a, a special guy named Taylon let's see who plays football at illinois 
father, mm-hmm. uh, has his own brand. Um, and obviously he's a student athlete too. And, and I'm like, Taylor, how are you balancing all this? How do you have all the time in the day? And he, <laughs> and he told us his, his answer was so spe- special to me. He just said, I prayed to have a platform like this one day. And now that I have that platform, I'm not going to waste it. And I just think that I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, your perspective on life at 21, 22 year, two years old is incredible. Um, so yeah, athletes are just so incredibly special. Yeah, um, they have a lot to teach us for sure. Yeah. And, and I, I think, uh, you know, you said something very valuable where, where you find you are right now in terms of finding something um, that mixes your passions between being an immigrant yourself and also being, being able to work in sports. Um, we work with all these athletes and, and college age students are trying to figure out what they want to do. Um, we, and we tell them, find your passion. And for you, like it matters to you that much more, right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and I think actually the the apprehension that you have as a young person and following your uh, your dreams is something that I was able to overcome by seeing the athletes that I was around follow what they were passionate about and really capitalizing on some of that. And I was like, okay, you know, if if these folks can do it and they're my age and, you know, we're similarly situated, I can do it maybe in a slightly different realm, but it was, it was definitely inspirational for me. So um, absolutely. So let's transition the conversation into a little bit of, you know, what we're here to talk about, the NIL stuff and, and, and particularly your area of expertise. Give us so so I'll, I'll give, you know, maybe the 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 80,000 foot view and then you can maybe give us the 30,000 foot view. But as it stands right now, international students face a, a lot of complications mm-hmm. getting involved in NIL activities as a result of the particular visa that they're on Mm -hmm. in order to come to this country, be a student and compete in, you know, previously a sport in college that, that didn't have any earning potential. Um, Mm -hmm. now that there is earning potential there, that creates some legislation complications, um, for international student athletes and and the sentiment in the news rightly so is that they're, they're forgotten, right? They're, they're just completely left out of these opportunities. So maybe you could drill in a a little bit more to, to kind of where the status is and what, what some of these challenges are that these international students are facing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I mean, I think that international student athletes are the unintended victims of NIL. Um, You know, on the one hand, there's this very attractive opportunity to earn money. And I think it's even more attractive for some of these student athletes, particularly those that are coming from developing countries where, you know, their opportunity to play a sport in the U.S. and potentially get to the next level is going to be life changing, not only for them, but for their family and potentially for their community that they come from. So it's very important to give them the opportunity to participate. But it's like dangling this carrot in front of them and saying, no, but you can't have it. Right. And, um, you know, the NCAA is kind of taking this hands off approach. Um, because this, it's not their space to regulate, but they didn't really consider it, I don't think. Um, you know, And it's not a small problem. And when I spoke to my contact at the Wall Street Journal, and we did an article on this when some of the first few uh, deals were being announced, she got a comment from the Department of Homeland Security on the issue. And they basically said, we don't believe that this is a wide-scale problem. We're monitoring 
monitoring it, but until we believe that it is, we're not going to issue any sort of policy guidance, which I think is a huge mistake because it leaves this no man's land of a patchwork of regulations, you know, none of which really work really well for what NIL truly is, right? So to kind of get back to the uh, the F1 student visa that most of these athletes are on, that provides exceptionally limited employment opportunities, uh, primarily through um, employment that's related to the degree program. So basically, you know, uh, practical training either during uh, the, the student's course of study or after the student has completed the course of study. And it's designed to be able to allow the student to um, to employ the skills and, um, and knowledge base that they acquired during the course of their education, which all makes sense, right? That wasn't designed for NIL um, and it doesn't necessarily encompass NIL. So where I think, you know, there may be some uh, some opportunity to uh, to work with that structure is perhaps if somebody is studying marketing, you know, sports marketing, sports management, they may be able to kind of stick it into OPT or CPT and make that work. The other um, um, uh, employment authorization that's allowed is on-campus employment. NIL is not going to work for that because that would have to be on-campus for the university. You know, obviously that that's not how NIL sponsorship work. So that's going to be out, out the door. So then the next question is, okay, so if they can't do it on their student visa, how can they do it? Right. And some of the solutions that we've seen are, okay, so we're going to, you know, send this student uh, to do film in a third country and then compensate them to their account back at home. Well, that may or may not work because, you know, some of these folks are saying, well, we're just going across the border to Mexico. Well, Mexico has immigration laws, you know, you need to make sure you're compliant with Mexican immigration laws. You can't just go there and do work and assume that you're, you know, you're okay. Um, so, you know, so those are factors to consider. If they're going back to their home country, doing this, the filming there and getting paid there, that's probably okay to the extent that there aren't promotional activities that then happen in the U.S. by the athlete. And this is the concern that I have because I think for the most part, if a young person is given an NIL opportunity of any kind, like let's say, you know, let's say it's a t-shirt, right? Got a t-shirt. We, you know, you, you did the shoot back in, you know, in England where they're from, you paid them in England to do the shoot, then the t-shirts on sale in the U S it's going to be very difficult to prevent that young person from going on their social media and saying, go buy this t-shirt. Right. And that promotion, that very limited act of saying, go buy this t-shirt could be perceived as employment requiring employment authorization because they're providing a service, which is marketing and promotion in exchange for remuneration, which is going to come in the form of, you know, some sort of, uh, either flat fee based or commission based, whatever it is. Um, but it's work and, and, and that could be really problematic. And so the question is, okay, so if we can't do that, how how can we do that? And right now, the answer is potentially some athletes may be eligible for extraordinary ability visas. Now, if we're talking about this 20,000 number of 20,000 international student athletes in the NCAA, we are probably talking about less than 5% of those folks that are going to be eligible for what I'm talking about, which is these extraordinary ability visas. And there are certain sports and certain types of um, 
of sports that are more amenable to this than others. I would say that the best chance of getting extraordinary ability visas are going to be for athletes who are in sports that are Olympic um, and those where there's some overlap between the NCAA competitors and competitors at the elite level internationally. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about track and field. I'm talking about gymnastics. I'm talking about swimming, right? These are sports where we see NCAA athletes routinely compete alongside pros, right, or um, or high-level amateurs at these elite international competitions, such as their world championships, uh, the Olympics, etc. So um, in that context, we could make an argument for extraordinary ability visas. Now, um, I have gotten extraordinary ability visas for athletes in these sports pre-NIL, okay? The question is, the million-dollar question is, how is the government going to perceive this now that NIL is part of the package, right? Now, in theory, these visas have always been designed to allow marketing activities, promotional activities that are ancillary to the athlete's performance of their duties as an athlete. Okay. And essentially the argument that we're making is that's all NIL is, right? It's all because it's, you know, it's inherently derivative of their work as an athlete, right? They don't have a name, image, and likeness to sell unless they are famous because they're an athlete, right? And so, so with making those arguments, we could lay the foundation for certain elite athletes to potentially get these visas. Now, I just filed my first one for an NCAA Division I basketball player for a top 15 basketball team. I am not allowed to say who it is. Um, and I don't have a result yet, but I should have a result in the next 10 days based on the filing timeline that we have. And then I will talk to my clients to see if they want to go public with it. Um, but, you know, but this is sort of the test case right now. I and this did is, do, oh, go ahead. This is, this. sorry, this is really, I want to unpack a couple things there because this is, mm-hmm. this is really interesting thing. Uh, it, there's, there's a few things. The first is, you know, when you talk about Department of Homeland Security kind of taking that that approach of, well, this is not a a wide problem that we need to solve or, you know, this this doesn't really have um, wide ranging implications. You know, when you look at how a lot of us who love sport and are attracted to sport, it, it goes beyond just the fact of, oh, I just happen to like basketball. Right. But we're attracted to sport because we see it as this this kind of either measuring stick or a driver of change, right? Either transnationally or or socially. And so it really is, I I would argue that it's almost this perfect microcosm to say, hey, let's solve this problem before it gets to this, you know, massive national issue um, where we're getting- the NCAA we're talking about, Adam. Anyway, (laughs) yeah, I know, I know, wishing for too much. But the other thing that's really interesting here to me is, you know, we have this, this, uh, phenomenon of, of, of brain drain, right. That we see in a ton of other industries, you know, tech talent coming to the States or, or wherever that then ends up almost kind of handicapping the talent, you know, from the, their home countries in athletics, we see the phenomenon of, of brawn drain, right. We saw France win the world cup, you know, a couple of years ago, the vast majority of those starting 11 were either first or second generation um, immigrants, right? And so, w- when you when you start to to handicap people's ability to earn uh, money based on the thing that they're doing, uh, based on their residency or their status, you really start to to handicap generational um, 
opportunities as well, because that that's the whole point of the opportunity, right? Is, is to turn around and help um, people back home with the opportunities you're gaining through your talent. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I mean, I, I think the social and economic benefits of sport are vast. And the government has gone so far as to say that sport is in the national interest. In fact, there was um, back when we were dealing with the Trump era travel bans from Europe, they made an exception for sports on the basis that they recognized that sport was in the national interest. And it was important, particularly during the time of the pandemic, to people's mental health and, um, you know, to unity and, and other considerations. So you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I don't think there's any rational basis to, uh, to make this a, uh, a difficult uh, issue, right? It, it should be simple. It should be, let's create an avenue for these athletes to partake in NIL because, you know, it's not just the athlete and the benefit to the athlete and the benefit to their community back in their home country. It's the benefit to the local community. I mean, mm-hmm. we are essentially, you know, most NIL deals are not with these mega companies and, and aren't six-figure, seven-figure deals. They're small business deals locally, right? It's some guy that's going to say, hey, I'm going to sign autographs at this pizzeria every Friday mm-hmm. and the pizzeria, you know, provides them free pizza for the semester, or, you know, or 750 bucks for books, whatever it is. Right. And that benefits everyone around because we're stimulating sales of pizzas for that local small business, for that mom and pop shop that may not need to, you know, rely on government bailouts and things like that during the next uh, PPP draw or whatever that happens to be. Right. So <laughs> it's it's beneficial across the board. And 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 sport is also one of these things that sport is apolitical um, in, in the sense that it's um, it's nonpartisan, I guess, is the, is the more correct mm-hmm. term. Right. Because immigration has become a very politically divisive issue. And, mm-hmm. you know, if we look back maybe seven to 10 years, we had the, the bipartisan gang of eight who was trying to come up with immigration reform. And they were, you know, talking about humanitarian issues. Humanitarian issues are completely off the table because, mm-hmm. you know, we have uh, parties that, are, that have completely divergent views on these humanitarian issues. Now, what I've been saying to my colleagues and to the American Immigration Lawyers Association is that sport is our opportunity to get in front of an audience and speak in a way that brings people together. Because whether you go into a Republican congressional office or a Democratic congressional office, guess what? They all love sports, right? Right. Um, They may have some feelings about the border or about, you know, about amnesty and things like that, but they all love sports. And I think this is something that we can rally some support around, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it can be a, a way that we mend sort of political divides. And I think that's really powerful. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so I, I absolutely think that sport is a vehicle for, um, for massive social change. Kazana, you, you, you mentioned, uh, talking about athletes who have had to leave the country to get involved with NIL deals. One of the, uh, more famous stories that came out was Oscar Shibway, Kentucky mm-hmm. basketball player who, uh, Kentucky actually did a team trip to the Bahamas. And, um, while the team was practicing and playing down there, Oscar actually was able to spend his time. Coach Calipari gets it, knows that this is an opportunity for Oscar to make money. Um, Oscar spent his time doing all kinds of different NIL deals. Um, can you explain just for people who don't really understand how this stuff works, why was he able to do that in the Bahamas, but he can't do that here in the United States? What's, what's the difference? 
So Oscar is actually an interesting case because um, Oscar was kind of the first person that started to have traction on this hey, there's a problem for international student athletes issue, sure. right? He was, he was kind of, I think, the first face of the issue. And as soon as I became aware of his issue, I started tweeting like crazy, his people need mm-hmm. to get him a no one visa. And I'm not his people. I'm not doing it. Um, <laughs> but I heard through the grapevine that they applied for an O one for him. So I'm glad to see that they've heeded my advice that that hopefully he's on track to get into a status that allows him to do it. But to answer your question, Sean, I mean, why he can't do it in the U.S. is because, as we mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, the F1 student visa severely limits your ability to earn income, right? To um, not just earn income, right? So they don't care about where you're getting paid. They care about where are you performing revenue generating services? And if those revenue generating services, i.e. filming, uh, you know, posting on social media, uh, signing autographs, uh, meeting with people for, you know, for money, whatever it may be. If that happens on U.S. soil, it doesn't matter where you get paid. It doesn't matter if your payment is deferred. What matters is those revenue generating services happen on U.S. soil, so they require employment authorization. And that is not a status. The F-1 student visa is not a status that provides employment authorization in that context. So that's why they're going outside the U.S. So they're saying, okay, if we don't have employment authorization to do it in the U.S., we're going to go do it somewhere else where we're outside the purview of U.S. immigration law, right? Because the U.S. immigration law is not extraterritorial. We can't say what, you know, employment authorization is required to do stuff in the Bahamas. That's that's the purview of, you know, of their local laws. Now, to go back to that O-1 issue and, you know, and this is kind of coming full circle to, um, to how we get a solution going, the O-1 is one of these extraordinary ability visas, which Oscar, given his stature in the field, I think qualifies for based on the merits of his accomplishments. And it's a visa that on its face is not inconsistent with NIL. Now, again, you know, what we're, these are the the first few test cases, and I think it'll be interesting to see how it goes um, to see the position that USCIS is going to take on these cases in the NIL context. Now, what I would say is if any of these cases get denied, it's a wonderful opportunity to go to federal court, sue on it, and get the courts to come up with a policy if USCIS won't do it. Um, and so I would love an opportunity to litigate, um, you know, any of these denials if they happen to, to come down the pike, because I love suing the government in federal court. <laughs> so so how many, you know, we're, we're talking about O one extraordinary ability, EB1 visas, P1, yeah. P1A. So. Yeah. When we're talking about an extraordinary ability visa, that that's kind of that EB category, mm-hmm. and it, that's the green know. card. So just to be clear, the EB one is the green card. So if and and this is, I'm a non lawyer here, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how I'm just trying to think of the path forward for students if if they're able to secure a, a different visa, or a secondary visa, while they're still a student. My first mm-hmm. question would be how many visas. And, and this is probably a silly question. How many visas can you carry at a time? Number one. And number two, w- w- what do we think maybe some of the implications are of like, okay, you, you've got this extraordinary ability visa so that you can earn money, but you're technically not allowed to earn money based on your athletic ability. I, I, where do we see kind of that, or I should say athletic performance? Where do we see that kind of, I don't know, shaking out? 
Okay, so I'll, I'll try to explain that. So with respect to the EB1A, the EB1A is kind of the holy grail, right? That's the green card, okay? So the reason why the green card is the holy grail is because it provides you with unlimited opportunity to work in any context as an athlete, as not an athlete. It doesn't matter. Everything is fair game, right? So I actually just got um, earlier this season an extraordinary ability green card for a track and field athlete who was an Olympic finalist. Um, so she has a year of NCAA eligibility left and she now can do NIL. Um, among other things, right? Like she can start a side business selling donuts from, you know, a food truck, whatever it is, right? She can do anything um, as long as she doesn't vote and, um, you know, and doesn't vote in U.S. elections and doesn't get herself arrested. She's good. She can stay here. She can work. Um, the O and the P are much more limited in that they are generally for you to perform primarily to perform as an athlete, right? So you can like compete, you know, perform in whatever context it works in your sport. So, you know, play basketball games, run in track meets, swim in uh, swimming competitions. And if structured properly, it does also allow ancillary marketing activities, okay? But it has to be included in the petition. So to your question, Adam, how do they make money from the other stuff? By including that stuff in the OMP petitions, right? So for the athlete that I just filed, his itinerary was playing basketball plus the NIL deals that he had inked that were contingent on the issuance of a status that allows him to actually work and, you know, and perform those services in the U.S. So, so, so that's how that works. There's there's two things that I'm hearing you say. The first is if you're going to ask for it, ask for it all. And the second thing, I, I mean, within reason. And the second thing is if you're going to do this as an international student athlete, make sure you hire a really good sports visa lawyer who knows what they're doing. <laughs> uh, that is true. That is true. And and just to be clear, I mean, we have to say, you, you know, the, the number of people that are going to qualify for the extraordinary ability green card in college is extremely limited. You know, like I said, this young woman was able to qualify because she was literally an Olympic finalist, right? One mm -hmm. of the, the youngest ever. So that that's fairly uncommon in most sports, right? That's, you know, not many cases, of those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so to be clear, these extraordinary ability visas and green cards are not going to be available to, you know, so say a D2 athlete in a sport that, you know, maybe has 300 spectators per game is it's just not going to work. Right. We're talking right. about very accomplished athletes who have international media coverage who've probably been on their country's national team who have international rankings, things like that. So, you know, but if properly structured, those really accomplished people and like Oscar being one of those, right. Can certainly, apply for these visas, which on their face, allow you to both perform as an athlete as well as generate marketing, you know, and promotional revenues. And according to guidance from CBP also allow you to go to college full time. Okay, there's there's guidance on this. Um, to your question as to how many visas you can hold at a time, visas um, are a little bit tricky. So <clears throat> the way that I explain this to my clients is, Pretend you're going to a uh, to a, like a cineplex, like a you know a movie theater where multiple movies are on at the same time. Okay, now let's say you buy uh, three tickets to three movies. Okay, 
You can have three tickets. Nobody says you can't buy three tickets to three movies, but you can only see one movie at a time. You can only walk in to one movie theater and be in one movie theater at a time. Visas work the exact same way. So you might have a valid student visa, a valid, you know, O1 extraordinary ability visa, and like, let's say something else and a B2 visa, for example, a, a tourist visa. However, when you get to the border, they're going to ask you, which movie do you want to see? Okay. <laughs> so then you're going to pick which one it is. And, you know, once you're in, you're committed to that one. You can't walk out. So to get into the other movie, you've got to leave or you have to change status through filing some immigration forms and things like that. So, you know, so you can have any number of active visas. You can only be in one status when you're in the U.S. Got it. No, that, that that's a great analogy. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna need to take some notes after this uh, myself. <laughs> Remember these; these are fantastic. So, you know, you talked about obviously the extraordinary ability visa has the word extraordinary in it. Mm-hmm. That, that not many people are going to qualify for that. So, when we're talking about NIL activities and the opportunities here, 180,000 Division One student athletes, not all of them are going to be you know eligible for e- extraordinary ability. Um, Let's talk a little bit about what opportunities are available. You know, there's a lot of group licensing activities. There's a lot of this, this, this kind of passive activities that student athletes can participate in. Um, where's, where's maybe the gray area? Where's the safety zone? Yeah. How, how does that work for them? So passive income is really tricky, right? Because basically, if you are, if you are doing anything to generate revenue then it requires work authorization. It's really quite restrictive, right? So you may be able to get away with a, you know, like like a licensing agreement where let's say, uh, let's say Campus Inc. takes a pre-existing photo of an athlete, you know, taken at their game in 2019 or something, puts it on a t-shirt and starts selling it, Right. Mm-hmm. And the athlete is going to receive a commission for that, uh, for the sale of that T-shirt. Now, provided that the athlete did not create the design for you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, because I know that, you know, that's mostly how you guys work, right? Um, but yeah, but a pre-existing image on a T-shirt, that goes out and the athlete is receiving a commission. That's probably okay. Now, if the athlete goes out and starts talking on campus to his friends and saying, hey, go buy my T-shirt or starts doing it on social media, then we have a problem. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, so it depends on how much activity um, and and how much effort and sort of, um, you know, active steps the athlete is taking in regards to the deal. So it's really hard to kind of make a blanket assessment. So not all group deals are going to be permissible. And not all group deals are going to be disallowable, right? So it's just um, you have to look at everything individually. And that's what I tell my clients is I, I got to get eyes on the deal before I can tell you whether you can do this. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, that's the takeaway is there there are lots of immigration attorneys. You know, we're federally licensed. So one of the great things about immigration law is it's federal. So, um, you know, as long as it's an attorney that's licensed in a single state, they can represent clients in all different states. And, you know, and quite frankly, there's more than enough work for um, the people who are actively in this field right now. And I'm not the only one. Um, mm-hmm. So if you already have a relationship with an immigration attorney, by all means, reach out to them and talk to them, but understand that it's deal specific. Mm-hmm. 
I, I don't have a, a question as much as a comment. I, I just really want to thank you for what you're doing for uh, international <laughs> students and helping them navigate this NIL space. Um, what you said very early on really struck a chord with me. I, I previously worked at University of Maryland with the basketball team there, and we had many, many international students, um, a lot of African basketball players who I always think about their stories. They had some of the most incredible stories they can, they would almost every time would come over when they were 15 years old and they were now 21 or 22. And I would ask them, Hey, when was the last time you were back home? Oh, I haven't been back home. And you realize like, wow, your entire family, your life, they put it all into sending you across the States and hope that you're going to make it and hope that you're making it to the NBA. And you know how hard and difficult it is for anybody to make it to that level. And they're putting everything they got into that. And if he doesn't make it or she doesn't make it, then I don't know. Are you considered a failure? I don't know, but you're going back there and, and having to deal with that. And so then when you have something like NIL where you actually can have a way to provide income for your family back home that might need it. Um, I just think it's so incredibly important what you're doing. Uh, and so I just, I, I want to thank you for that. I appreciate it. Like, like I said, I'm certainly not the only one. I mean, there are lots of advocates in this space. Um, many of them student athletes, including my client who got her green card. She's still advocating for her fellow international student athletes. And, um, you know, there are a number of players in the NIL space, attorneys, non-attorneys, compliance officers, um, that are truly passionate about this issue and understand the importance of getting guidance so that we don't have to play the guessing game. Because right now, you know, I, I just did a full day uh, conference on this whole issue, right? Um, you know, we spent eight hours kind of beating this dead horse of like, hey, there's this spectrum of risk and, um, you know, and we don't want to get on this end of the spectrum. We want to be somewhere towards the middle. There are things that are clearly safe. There are things that are kind of, you know, Goldilocks zone. And there are things that are, you know, that are definitely questionable. And, um, you know, I'm passionate about education. I think that, you know, um, I, I think there's room in this industry for many more entrants. And I encourage other people to get in, um, attorneys, uh, people who are involved in the business side of things, agents. I think that, you know, athletes deserve valuable advice from mm -hmm. all angles. And um, and I think there are lots of people out there who can offer that advice. And I, I want to thank the advocates in the space who continue to push for this. And those who are entering the space, I'd like to encourage to... Um, to get involved in those advocacy efforts because we do need more guidance and, um, and that'll just be beneficial for everyone involved. Yeah. You, you know, we, we talk about this a lot of, this is, this really is a, an incredibly rare time and opportunity where things are, are so shaken up and mm -hmm. you know, what, what an important season, not just of the opportunity for change, but the opportunity to get the change right. And so mm -hmm. having people come into the space who, who have the right perspective, who have the ability to advocate for the right people in the right manners is, is incredibly important. And so I, I want to dive in, um, just on a couple more things, um, practically if possible. So I, I want to touch on two things, one schools and two athletes 
themselves. We'll start with the schools and then we'll, we'll close out with the athletes. So wh- what do you think a school's approach could or should be from an advocacy, from an educational um, or, or from a resource standpoint for their student athletes? What would you like to see athletic departments do? So I think the approach that athletic departments are taking and understandably so is largely a hands off approach because of liability issues. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, If they start saying, you know, go see this person, they're going to help you out. And that person messes something up. There is a potential liability exposure for the university. So understandably, they're hesitant to recommend any specific service, any specific professional um, you know, I, I think broadly informing athletes that there is help and that they should try to find it is the best thing that they can do, kind of balancing the considerations of liability versus um, the need to educate their um, their athletes. I'm really pleased to see that many universities have already installed NIL compliance officers, mm-hmm. they're starting to put together NIL policies, although in, in what I've seen so far, I haven't seen too many universities that are really um, allowing their NIL departments to get particularly involved on the immigration side of things. And again, I think that that's just a deliberate choice that they're making based on liability issues. Um, but I, I, I think that the guidance should be in the form of, hey, this is what you need to know. You need mm-hmm. to know that your F1 student visa does not allow you to do NIL, you know, with limited exceptions. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like to know what those limited exceptions might be or if you'd like to understand whether you can transition to a different status, you need to go see an immigration attorney. You need to go talk to an NIL agency about, you know, the potential deals that you get, whatever it is. Um, you know, you need to go strike up a deal with Campus Inc. I don't know if they can say it directly, <laughs> but I know you guys have a spe- a school specific deals and that's great. But, um, you know, I, I think just gently nudging them in the direction of look for resources because the resources do exist is the best that they can do right now um, without sort of getting themselves in hot water. Yeah, no, that's great. And that's, you know, this is no exception to the other NIL resources that are out there, right? Like you you have so many incredible um, benefits as a student at your disposable, at your disposal, being a part of this ecosystem, take advantage of them. And, you know, we, we, we do work with a couple international athletes and, and they're very unique situations where, you know, we work directly with the school and, you know, ISS and, and we make sure that our T's are crossed and our I's are dotted and, and make sure that things are all above board. There are opportunities. You just have to be really, really clear on what you're doing and not doing. Um, so the second part of that question is, is for the students. Would love just to, to get some practical advice for students trying to navigate this space, student athletes who maybe aren't in those, you know, Olympic sports or, or are, um, mm-hmm. what, what would your advice be to, to international student athletes trying to figure it out? So I think that anybody that's got a potential big money deal on the table needs to go talk to an immigration lawyer, because if you have the type of name, image and likeness, you know, marketability that presents itself with seven, six, seven figure deals, you may very well be of the caliber of athlete that qualifies for one of these classifications. So mm-hmm. that could be just, you know, sort of a, a rough gauge of, Hey, do I need to go talk to somebody that that's probably a good indicator. Um, 
you know, as far as everyone else, it's it's not a bad idea to uh, to discuss the options. You know, there are people that that might have other options, sort of independent of sports, and it's always a good idea to discuss those with an immigration attorney as well. I think tax advice is really important because you know one of the things that people don't realize is that. Um, even if you're not a green card holder, if you spend a certain amount of time in the U.S., you can become a U.S. tax resident. And when we're talking about these six, seven figure deals, that implicates a large sum of money. So, you know, getting pre-immigration tax planning advice from a tax attorney or a CPA with experience in specifically pre-immigration tax planning is really critical to protecting their financial position and creating um, a tax optimization for them going forward. So, um, so that's obviously something that um, that athletes probably, you know, don't think about. They may think about immigration, but they may not think about this. So, I think that's that's a big one. And um, you know, the other thing is just um, I, I think you have to trust your network, right? I think mm-hmm. that. Um, our networks are always the best resource that we have and athletes are interconnected and they, you know, typically will speak to each other to try to get recommendations as to who to go to and who's trustworthy and, and uh, who's not. And I think, you know, a lot of it is just about personal fit too, because I always tell people, whatever professional you use, whether it's an attorney, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a CPA, you have to feel comfortable with them. You have to be able to look at that person and say, I trust you because Mm -hmm. These things are really high stakes, right? And um, you want to make sure that the person that you have the relationship with is somebody that you have 110% trust in. Because unfortunately, particularly in you know situations where something is the wild, wild west, and it's certainly NIL is, it's, it's the biggest change in sports law in probably three decades, right? And there's very little regulation. I think that'll change to some extent, but it certainly is is a landscape that is ripe for bad actors, unfortunately, as well. And so I think, you know, doing your due diligence, asking for second opinions, uh, plugging into your network, really vetting the people that you're interested in working with is really, really important. Yeah, all all incredible advice, um, fascinating conversation. Cannot thank you enough. The sports visa lawyer, Ksenia Myrova, thank you for joining us today. It was, it was an absolutely fascinating and incredible conversation. I am Adam Cook here with Sean Ellenby. This is another episode of the NIL Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Hey everyone, Adam Cook from Campus Inc. in the NIL store. Just wanted to say thanks again for listening and joining us on this journey. And as a reminder, if you ever need any team wear, custom merchandise, rec or youth league jerseys, uh, fraternity and sorority wear, or company merchandise, we're always here for you. You can find us at campus.inc. And of course, for all your NIL needs, nil.store.